listening to On the Couch with Carly. Carly's Couch is a safe space to talk. I'm a psychologist, but I'm not your pipe-smoking, tweed-wearing stereotype. Hello, and welcome back to On the Couch with Carly. I'm super excited because I have a guest with me today, the fabulous, phenomenal Meg Fora, who is a parenting expert in South Africa and beyond, who's, re- who's written a number of quite a lot of different um, parenting books and has an app called Parent Sense and is just, I mean, always in my Instagram feed giving amazing tips and, you know, free advice that is super useful. And and so I'm so, so excited to have you here today, Meg, so we can chat about all things sleep. Fabulous. It's really great to be with you, Carly. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So I asked my followers to ask me what I should ask you. So we we had a little question on um, Instagram, ask Meg anything. And what we got was a, a couple of things, but what I want to hone in on today is a, a really interesting question by someone who's a journalist and who's very well researched herself. Um, she sent me a bunch of stuff that I, I found super fascinating, but she, uh, she asked the question to Meg about Meg's uh, research into sleep that informs her understanding of sleep because she says things have changed in terms of the the research and the data on infant sleep since Sleep Sense came out. Um, and she wants to understand, has that shift, has your perspective on, on sleep shifted over the years? And currently, where are you in terms of your, um, I guess, like your working understanding of, of what is infant sleep? What should we be doing with baby sleep? How should we be encouraging sleep? Um, are we still doing the same things we did, you know, when you wrote, when you wrote Sleep Sense or has things changed over the years? Look, uh, babies haven't changed over the years. So babies are exactly the same. So nothing has changed there. However, there are nuances that are very important to recognize and to note. And they're not necessarily things that have changed with time, but they are important. And the first and most important thing is that sleep is, and our expectations of sleep is incredibly cultural and it's culturally bound. And um, so we there are populations in the world who just don't expect their babies to sleep through the night. And, um, and that's an important thing to immediately kind of Put out there. I was just very recently in Spain in in this height of summer, where the sun is setting at kind of ten o'clock at night, and they have this um, culture of siestas where the whole country closes from two until five p.m. I mean, literally nothing happens, and then everybody gets back back up at five p.m. and then they go through until you know kind of eleven, twelve at night. And I was watching the babies, and the babies were out and about really, really late. And that um, culture is very counter to what I have put forward um, in my books and in my app, where I talk about a bedtime routine and, and a bedtime um, hygiene, um, certainly going down, babies going down between seven, uh, you know, about seven o'clock. So yes, there are, you know, when, when we start to look at, um, if, I mean, if you want to unpack sleep you know, kind of as a journalist, yes. I mean, maybe Sleep Sense wasn't going in the right direction. Maybe having all babies go to sleep at seven o'clock in the evening is not the right direction to go. And maybe babies don't need to self-soothe and sleep through the night. The thing is, though, that when you look at our culture and the culture that I come from, and certainly most many of the moms that I interact with in South Africa, moms do want to have their babies sleeping through the night because sleep deprivation is a real issue for them, particularly if they're returning to work. 
And so in the global north or, you know, in, in, in the Western world, as it were, um, our culture is to have our babies sleep through the night. It is to have our babies ultimately sleep in a separate space and it is to have our babies self-soothe. So as opposed to it being new research, I would say that we need to recognize that it's culturally bound. And that also means that trends will come and go. And so there, there might be a trend towards not having children sleep in separate spaces and um, and that's important to recognize. What I have always done going back from, you know, from pre-sleep sense days is tried to have a look at the research and the science and say, okay, so in in a culture where we want our babies to, to sleep through the night, in a culture where we are very cognizant of SIDS, you know, ha- having a look at all of these type of things, you know, how do we debunk the science and how do we say, right, that this is what's sensible in the context of the fact that every mom is going to parent differently. So um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but yes, do try to keep up with the science, but you know, it is sleep is nuanced. Yeah, no, I love what you're saying about it being a cultural sort of, um, I, I mean, I think it's important to recognize it within its cultural context and that, and that advice that is given is also given within a cultural context. Um, and I think to bring it back to a more from like a more personal perspective is I'm currently I've got a seven month old baby and I'm currently grappling with my own understanding of what, you know, what do, what do you want to encourage at this stage going forward in terms of sleep and how can you do that while still maintaining a close bond with your baby where you don't feel like you're leaving your baby to handle their emotions on their own. So I've, I'm looking into, you know, the, the, the two sort of different, I, I guess what's what I always try and veer away from is being forced into two discrete camps, one, one of two discrete camps. And I, and I, and I do find that, that you either have the sort of hardcore sleep training camp, which is like, you know, Babies must sleep through the night. We, we, it's all about what mom and dad needs. That never mind what baby needs. We're not going to follow what's what's developmentally appropriate. We just want to sleep. And then the sort of on the other side of the spectrum is the sort of like co-sleeping, attachment parenting, um, you know, bed sharing, breastfeeding all through the night. And baby is always attached to mom and baby uh, is always having contact naps. And there's almost like no separation between mom and baby all the way through from zero to three. And I'm, and I find myself somewhere in the middle of that. And so I'm, I'm grappling and I'm trying to figure out like, what is the middle ground? You know, what is the, and I I recently listened to your podcast with a mom um, that you had, which was about co-regulation and about sort of like gentle sleep training methods and how, you know, and I think this is sort of in line with what you said in, in sleep sense, but slightly adjusted in terms of the language using the idea of co-regulation but that I I understand there's like a way to be involved and 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 um present with your baby but still encourage independent sleep a bit more my problem is that I haven't yet found out how to do that for this particular baby for my firstborn, I did it. I followed sleep sense. I did essentially the pick up, put put down method where I never felt like I left her by herself upset. Mm-hmm. I was always holding her until she was mm-hmm. soothed and comforted. And then I put her back down and said, it's sleepy time. You know, you've got your bunny, you've got your dummy, but you could go to sleep by yourself. And eventually she did. And then 
soon afterwards was able to self-settle to go to bed. It didn't mean she slept through the night, but she did She did self-settle, and I felt that was something of an achievement. This baby, I try to do that, and it hasn't clicked. It's like she hasn't yet got that Mm. self-settling down. Mm. So it meant that I've had to go back to the drawing board, and then I started researching things, and I looked into – I don't know if you've heard of this um, Dr. Greer Kirschenbaum. She's she's written a book called The Nurture Revolution, and she's a neuroscientist. Anyway, I'm going on a bit of a tangent here, Meg, but um, she wrote she wrote this book and I've been listening to podcasts of hers and follow her on Instagram. And essentially what she's saying, which is a little bit jarring and I'm not quite sure how to absorb it, but she's saying that babies' brains are just not developed enough to calm themselves down by themselves. They have to be in a relationship that is supportive and nurturing in order to regulate because the parts in the brain that are responsible for taking in the stress response to taking from from a to being stressed to being uns to, to you know no longer stressed they don't have that part developed yet and mm-hmm. so the, they borrow from the parent's brain and the parent has to do the regulating so mm-hmm. that the baby can calm down and so any sleep training that is involved where the baby's crying by themselves and has to essentially go to sleep from crying is is a is is not really meeting our children's needs and not nurturing them in the way they need. Mm. So that was a lot, but what what do you think of that? So first of all, I mean, I love that. I think I think she's I think actually think she's spot on. Um, you've brought up up so many things here. So let me first go to looking at your two daughters and the fact that one did it according to a book and the other one is writing her own book. (laughs) That is the way that parenting is. Little ones are so incredibly different. And I think that's probably the first thing that people need to understand is that whether you're listening to um, a sleep expert who wrote Sleep Sense or to a different one, um, your babies are going to be different and what works for one baby won't work for another. One of the things that I do encourage parents to do is to understand their baby's sensory personality because one of the most important things when you're starting to um, find the right path for yourself and your baby is to understand really their sensory load, their sensory threshold, um, how they're soothed. And I have a course on the app called the um, the Sensory Personality um, course, and I think every parent should do it. it. It just if you understand that about your baby, your more sensitive babies and your slow to warm up babies need a lot more control. Um, they need you know they need to understand structure. They need predictability. Um, your settled baby is going to follow any routine. Doesn't matter what you do. In fact, you can completely wing it. They'll still sleep through the night. Um, and you can, you know, so, you know, you really have to understand that every baby is different as, as a first point of departure. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, and this is what I really like about, um, I didn't catch her name and I haven't uh, heard of her. Her name's Dr. Greer Kirschenbaum. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, what I really love about what she says is that babies have a capacity to self-regulate that happens at a developmental age. It isn't there in early infancy, which is why we have to be very available to our babies and nurture them early on. And in actual fact, um, self-regulation happens on a quite a specific developmental trajectory, similar to gross motor skills. So I'm an NDT therapist. A baby will 
develop extension after the, being in the womb in the first kind of four weeks. And then they'll develop active flexion in the next six weeks. And then they're going to develop rolling in the, within the first six months of life. And then they'll crawl and then they'll walk and then they'll run and then they'll, they'll jump. That is a developmental trajectory where one skill builds on another skill and it happens over a period of time so that by the time a baby is between 12 and 14 months old, most babies are walking. That's the average age. So that so that's an example of a developmental trajectory. Now, self-regulation is identical. The problem with self-regulation is that that final point where we can say, right, we're self-regulating and, and our whole brain has come on board to fully self-regulate takes 24 years. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is not 24 months. This is 24 years. And I, I'm going to show my age, but my son is actually 24. And so I can tell you that it took him 24 years. And, and when it came on board, it was like, oh my gosh. So that's what they're talking about. That frontal lobe is fully kicked in. And I felt like my parenting job was kind of done. But 24 years. Okay. And it takes time. And that means that it's a much slower trajectory towards self-regulation. Now, the ability to self-soothe to sleep and to settle myself and to regulate all other aspects of my behavior is critically important. And human beings who do not develop self-regulation will have difficulties. They have a much higher incidence of drug addiction. They have a much higher incidence of dropout from university. They have a much higher incidence of divorce. There are There's a lot of research that shows us that the ability to self-regulate our emotions Um, our cognition, um, our behavior is absolutely critically important. The problem is that it takes this very long period of time. But that doesn't mean that nothing is happening before 24 years old. It is a trajectory and it is happening in a process. Now, the very first step of that process is actually the process of really trusting another human being and validating my own emotions, which having my own emotions validated, which happens in the context of a super um, nurturing, um, reflective relationship. And that happens in the first six months of life. And that's why people say you do need to respond to your baby rapidly and, um, and appropriately, not all the time, because we have to fail. We also know that, that failure is very important. Failure and repair is very, very important in relationships. But that um, very quick response to little babies is important. Um, and that happens actually quite naturally for most of us. We we go through a process of primary maternal preoccupation where we are so preoccupied with these babies that, and we over-respond to them and we are supposed to do that. So when somebody says to a mom, don't pick the baby up too much because you're going to spoil them to about a six-week-old, that's not appropriate because that baby needs to know that they're the center of your world. The flip side of that, of course, is that we mothers and we human and actually we can't pick our babies up all the time and we're absolutely exhausted and we need a full night's sleep. So what happens between that complete attentiveness and meeting every single need and starting to transfer some independence to our babies? And that's where this relationship comes in. And as you um, alluded to, this co-regulation that I have an adult brain. I am better able to actually read the situation, read the state of your mind. Um, and so therefore I'm able to read what you need. And I probably know what you need as well. I know that you're tired now. So you might be niggling, you might be fighting sleep, but I know that you're not hungry. I know that you're not um, necessarily, maybe are overstimulated, but what you really need now is to sleep. And I can assist you to do that in the context of a relationship. 
And that's, you know, kind of where sleep training in from my perspective comes in. And I loved, absolutely loved what you said just now about the way in which you actually sleep trained your first child. So that was sleep training, even though that's become mm-hmm. such a harsh word. It was, I like to call it sleep coaching, where you're holding, nurturing, putting her down and teaching her to actually start to settle herself because it's that final thing of putting themselves to sleep that is where the habits can develop. And that's where you can create big dependencies like on rock to sleep and feed to sleep and and so on. And that can stand in the way of little ones developing self-regulation of sleep. So in a nutshell, long answer to your question, which was also a long question, um, mm-hmm. teaching your baby to self-soothe and self-settle, I do believe is important. So I am not in the camp of let babies lead the way and do, you know, completely just, um, you know, um, do all the settling for them for the kind of the first five years of life. I'm I'm not in that camp. I am in the camp of babies can and do need to learn to self-soothe, but I'm very much in the camp of that can only happen in a reflective relationship. And um, that's where I think intuitive, well, we're really caring and loving and nurturing parenting skills can enhance babies' ability towards um, self-soothing and settling. Yeah, I love your answer thank you so much and i and i can hear as you're talking that you that you are very informed by attachment theory and that you've done a lot of reading and understand attachment which is really the basis of i think any any parenting needs to needs to have attachment at the core of mm. of of what the reasoning behind everything we do is about forming this bond with our babies that is secure and safe and trusting so i really everything that you said makes a lot of sense i think for me, what what's hard, and I and I know a lot of moms or parents are aware of this as well, is that is the voices in the culture that sort of get into your head, you know, and and sort of there is a kind of judgmental. I want to say judgmental. There's a there's a judgmental tone to a lot of parents or experts, that Dr. Greer, Kirschenbaum included, being like, you can't meet your children's needs while sleep training like you can't there because I, I was actually listening to a podcast with, with her the, at the other day and she was saying how the issue with um sleep training is not necessarily what your behaviors are while you're sleep training so she said you know patting and shushing and using your voice and all of these methods which are often used in sleep training you know are, can be soothing um you know, and comforting responses. It is a response, a parental response to a child's needs. She said the issue is that the way we respond in the in the context of sleep training is via some external rule, or it's dictated to us by a, by an external sort of timeline or order. You know, you're allowed you're allowed to shush and pat, but you're not allowed to pick up. You're allowed to stay in the room, but only for three minutes. You and she said that is where the mismatch comes in, which is. I'm not actually attuning to my baby and what my baby needs. I'm, I'm, I'm using a prescribed formula of how I'm going to look like I'm meeting their needs, but I'm actually not. It's not truly in a in a in an organic relationship where I'm there in connection and and in, and in closeness with them. Yeah. So I'm sort of trying to find this magical unicorn yeah. where I'm am in an organic close relationship with my baby, mm-hmm. but still yeah. teaching independent yeah. kind of skills. Yeah. So look, I mean, I, I, I completely understand and, and, and get what she's saying. I don't necessarily 100% agree, though. Um, mm. First of all, 
any formulaic um, parenting, I, I do agree, is is not right because every baby's different, every mom is is different. But having said that, moms actually do hang their hats on formulas, and that, that's just the reality, you know. So when you've got, um, you know, um, it, you know, kind of the three minutes in the, in the room, which I which I don't believe in, and three minutes out, that that's not the strategy I like to use. I like moms to be present in the room. Um, it's it's a formula that moms can hang their hats on. Having said that, there are a lot of moms that can't sit in the room when their babies are crying because it's too distressing for them. And remember that when a baby is crying, the baby, it's a distress signal. The mom's brain goes into distress as well. Mm-hmm. So the mom will want to leave the room. And in the, in some situations, that mom is better able to parent. And, and although that isn't a process that I necessarily advocate, I'm very conscious of the fact that that mom might not be able to parent well if she is so sleep deprived and if she is you know at the end of her tether so for her walking out the room and having her little one sort themselves out which as I said is is not my ideal but that might be something that really works for her and three nights later her baby's sleeping through that mom's more emotionally available during the day and you know so I think I think we've got to be super careful you mentioned the word judgment and I think we, we just have to be super careful about judging because um we have we do have situations where moms have to leave the room and the the voice that they're listening to is a sleep coach who the, this is the voice they've chosen to listen to who has said to them you go out the room for 3 minutes and then your baby will learn to sleep through the, through the night that might not sit well with Dr. Grant might not sit well with you or with me but if the next day or 3 days later that mom is feeling emotionally available to parent her baby in a different way in a better way and that's much more important and that's why I don't sit on judgment in judgment on parents. Having said that, I do think that it's important for us to be able to be emotionally available to our little ones in in the context of a crying scenario. And um, because most sleep training, no matter how gentle it is supposed to be, will involve some crying. And that's part of what you're battling with now. You, you're battling with the fact that, you know, um, my baby's going to cry, so therefore I'm doing everything that you know the, the nurture parenting or attachment parenting says that I mustn't do. Um, but my baby's going to cry, and one of the things that I um, and, and and this is comes from my perspective, so take it from where it comes, is that I think that we have a lot of fear around our babies being uncomfortable or being distressed and crying. We as a culture, we we want our children to be happy all the time, okay? But then, and that's not just not reasonable. And actually having a, your baby and being okay with your baby being in a little bit of distress, but being there to love them and hold them and be okay and, and be there for them is actually healthy parenting. So um, a case in point, I mean, terrible scenario. My, 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 when my little boy was two years old, he fell and he cut, he sliced open his head. We had to take him to the closest hospital was a military hospital, which was an hour away. We get into the military hospital. There's, there's a, like a, like a a guy who had, I don't even know if he was trained and he's going to stitch James's head. And I had to hold my boy while they injected him, while they stitched him. I don't know if the anesthetic didn't work. He got, um, he burst every blood vessel in his, in the surface of his skin because he cried so hard. Now it was horrific. I can think back to it like it was yesterday and he's now 24 years old. So, you know, that that's heartfelt for me. I know his distress was off the, off the charts. I had to be okay with sitting with him, holding him, containing him, loving him, because I knew that what I was doing was heading in the right direction because we had to get this thing stitched. So I do think that, you know, because we are a culture that is so uncomfortable with being uncomfortable, that we almost have to become okay with 
containing somebody else's emotions and being okay. So that, that means we need to go into our green brain, be able to think about it, be able to love them, not to be in a panic ourselves, and then to be able to help them to soothe. And that can happen through sleep training, I guess. I mean, you could say. So I did sleep train my children. Um, I didn't have to sleep train my middle child because as I, I said right at the beginning, you get different sensory personalities. She slept through it six weeks and she just never didn't sleep through. So that was her. Um, and then the other two, I did have to do a bit of sleep coaching with them. Um, I certainly never left the room because um, with Emily because I didn't believe in that. But I was able to sit with her. I was able to hold her hand, to stroke her head, to pat her, to give her her doo-doo, to pat her some more and to be there with her. She was crying though. And I was okay with that because I knew where we were going with it. So, um, yeah, I think, so I think, I mean, different strokes for different folks is very, very important to recognize. Recognizing that moms have different capacities and not judging the ones that need to go down certain roads. But I think also being comfortable with babies being uncomfortable is also important, you know, and, um, and it's through discomfort that self-regulation happens. I mean, that's one of the things that I always say to parents is that we can't learn to self-regulate if everything is always in homeostasis. And that's a law of nature. You know, if the if the lizard who has to move into the sunshine to warm its body temperature is always in a constant, um, you know, terrarium, constant temperature terrarium, he doesn't need to move into the sunshine because the temperature is always the same. Okay. He needs to be cold to have to move into the sunshine. And that is self-regulation on a physiological level. And it's just the same for everything else. There has to be a level of discomfort and of uh, lack of homeostasis in order for us to seek homeostasis, which is ultimately what self-regulation is. So being comfortable being with discomfort is actually something that's part and parcel of passing over the, the, the baton to our children. And, um, to take this a little further, um, one day I might write teen sense, but uh, there's a big piece in teenage, in parenting teenagers of moving into a very uncomfortable and dangerous space where you hand over the baton because you know that they're going to go to the party, there is going to be alcohol, there is going to be you know the opportunity to do whatever, and you've got to take that leap of faith. Now, that is the most uncomfortable space a human being moves into as a parent. It really is. I can tell you that. Um, but if I don't do that, how's my child ever going to learn to self-regulate? You know, So I think we need to see self-regulation in the context of moving into discomfort, and then, but then being there as that scaffold to help our little ones in the right direction. Yes. Oh, thank you so much. I love what you've said. I really, really also value the piece on maternal mental health, which is that actually – if you need to do this for your mental health as a mom, that having those hours of sleep means you're more available and attentive parent during the day. I think we really need to acknowledge that that is critically important mm -hmm. and, and, and not to be judged. And I really, I really do appreciate that. And I think what you've given us is some really important things to think about in terms of the, the variations in, in, in ideologies really around, around childcare and that, that, there's something, if you believe in something and if you can, if you as the parent can feel regulated in your choice, mm. that's the most important thing, actually. Yeah. And whatever you choose, that it's your choice as a parent, but, but to, be to be able to be calm and sure about your choice and to know it's what's, what's right for your baby is actually the most important thing. And I think that's where I'm wanting to get to is sort of, in my own emotional 
regulation, actually, is that working on my emotional regulation so that I can choose whatever whatever I choose to do with the baby, but it's coming from a place of, yeah. I know this is okay. Absolutely. And I think part of that, uh, and, you know, we, we talk about the traffic light brain, you know, but we, we, you know, when we're in our green brain, we're calm, we're thinking, we can make the connections. And a lot of what I've spoken about now is, is when parents are able to be in that, in that green brain. When we're in our red brain, which is our panic brain, um, we're actually not doing anything very well. And so you, we're not able to co-regulate for another human being. And, and that will also happen. So if a parent is like freaking out, fatigued, um, you know, kind of like just in that terrible space. You 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 must not go into a sleep training scenario in that scenario in that yes, situation. Yes. You know, and it's it, in those situations, it's it's relying on your support system and saying to your husband, "Okay, I'm I'm there. I'm in my red brain. You're going to have to deal with this." You know, and it's the same goes for toddler temper tantrums. That's often where we go into our red brain. Ch- toddler has a temper tantrum. We go into our red brain as well. And you can now oh, you've got two toddlers in the room. So you do need to be quite conscious of yourself as a parent to know that, okay, what I'm doing is okay. Take a deep breath. We're all going to be all right. And I'm in my green brain. And I think it's quite important to say then to parents who, because what I read as well is that a lot of a lot of parental anxiety occurs around this time when they're expected to sleep train. Because obviously mm. now in Western culture, this is a very common thing to mm. sleep train. And but parents get to this point where they're like, oh, I need to sleep train. I should sleep train. My parent, my child does need to learn how to, mm. you know, sleep independently, and that can increase parental stress and anxiety. Mm. So I think I would say also to parents that if it doesn't feel right and you're actually your anxiety is going through the roof because you can't handle handle your child crying and you don't want to separate from them when they're distressed or you don't want to teach them these skills because it doesn't feel right with you, that that's also okay and that you can then lean into the more nurture side of that spectrum and be with them, hold them, let them sleep on you, let them be with you all night. Like that is also okay. And, mm-hmm. and, and the most important thing is that you as the parent are regulated and feel mm-hmm. like you are in tune with your baby from a place of, of self-regulation. Absolutely. Yeah. So we do cover off a lot of this in the in the Parent Sense app as well. There are courses inside the Parent Sense app that parents can do. Um, we also recently released a responsive routine, which is something that's a lot less rigid. It puts the control in parents' hands where they can actually say, well, my baby is not going to go to sleep at seven o'clock at night. Like the app says, my baby's bedtime is going to be nine o'clock because that's what works for us in our Spanish culture or whatever it is, you know. And um, so, you know, I think, I think that um, it is important for parents to recognize that there's no one size fits all and and that's you know kind of what I hope that we we are managing to achieve through through the parent sense app as well amazing thank you so much Meg I really appreciate your time and your thoughtful answers to the questions pleasure Carly it has been a pleasure to touch on quite a thorny issue um today so um I hope it I hope it goes far and wide thank you bye